If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab it. Go to Jonah. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 2. And let me just say while you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. I have mine and we're going to have the words up on the screen. And I want to say especially to those of you that this is your first time back in a long time maybe years of being out of church. I know it takes a lot of boldness to walk in after being gone for a while. And I don't know your story. I don't know if there's church hurt or what all happened, but it's a big deal that you're with us and this is a safe place. So thanks for, thanks for being with us. Uh, while you're turning to Jonah 2, I want to just kind of give a confession to you from my weekend. Uh, I, I worked really hard on my front lawn this week. So this is part of my confession. I uh, worked really, really hard getting my grass to look good. I mowed it. I uh, tried to, you know, do all the edging and all of that. I've been working on the fertilizer side of things this year. So it's like the first time my grass is actually green. And it's looking really great. I even, I even blew out the grass clippings on my driveway onto my neighbor's driveway driveway. So I even did that. Uh, Just kidding about actually doing that. But I I got the whole front looking really, really good. But don't walk into my house and definitely don't go to the backyard because I haven't touched my backyard in over a month. And it looks like a jungle back there. And I don't know why, but for some reason, I'm like, you know what matters is the front. I'll get to the back eventually. It looks terrible back there. And it's just like a crazy out of control jungle, but nobody can see it unless you come into my house. Has anybody ever done that? Or am I alone? Where you pay attention to the front. Yeah, a few of you, but the back you neglect. And the reason why we're okay with it is because we want people to drive by and go, wow, that looks really great, uh, but don't, don't come in. Or maybe that's not your story. Maybe, uh, maybe this is you. Have you, ever, have you ever cleaned your house by just stuffing a bunch of stuff in various closets and rooms, and then you shut the door, and then people walk in like, this is, this is a really nice, this is, everything's really clean. And you're like, I know, it is. Just don't come into this room. You're not allowed to go to that back bedroom. Or maybe, uh, moms, I don't know if this is true of you, have you ever caught your, uh, your, your kid doing something really cute, like really special, and you got to capture the moment, so you go to pull out your iPhone to get it, but about the time you get your iPhone out to capture it, the, the moment has passed, and they stop doing it. So, like a good mom, you recreate the moment with your kids, and you force them to do what they were doing so that you can get a, a picture and post it on Instagram. Anyone ever done that? Any moms? This is a safe place. This is... It's okay to not be okay, and we're praying for your soul. So um, maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe this is something you can resonate with. Have you ever been praying with a group of people, and you realize that you've zoned out in the prayer time or the prayer meeting or whatever, you've zoned out, and you kind of want to re-engage. You realize, oh man, I've been out of it for a few seconds or a few minutes, who knows? And so you go to jump back in, and instead of actually knowing what's being prayed, you just do that holy groan where you're like, hmm. Yes, even though you have no idea what's being prayed about. Have you ever done that? Yeah, I'm raising my hand because I've done that. Your pastor has done that. And you have too, you bunch of liars. You've done that too. I'm standing up here all by myself. So here's the thing. Here's why I bring all of that up, that it's very possible for all of us to just naturally put our best foot forward and kind of present this version of ourselves and our lives that we really want to be a certain way. We want to be seen a certain way, viewed a certain way, but don't dig too deep because there's some other stuff that's really messy and really broken and really off. And this isn't just true of our Instagram accounts or our houses or our laundry. This is true of our lives. This is true of the way that we interact with each other. And the reason why I bring that up is because that is Jonah in Jonah chapter two. The outside looks amazing, 
but there's something profoundly broken and wrong with what's happening. Now, let me just say this. The minute that I talk about Jonah, the first thing that comes into your minds is this idea of Jonah being swallowed by a giant fish. And so we've got to rescue the book of Jonah from the veggie tales crisis of our culture, right? We've got to rescue this story because we've kind of been taught that this is a hero story. This is a story about uh, God who really cares about the city. And at first Jonah disobeys and then haha, tricks on you. Uh, the fish eats him and now he has to go obey. And eventually he does and it's a happy ending. But not at all. That's not the story of Jonah whatsoever. In fact, Jonah, he's not a hero in the story. Jo Jonah's the anti-hero of the book. He's the worst character in the book. He's the, only, he's the only character in the book that doesn't ever obey God. The storms obey God. The, the, the sailors obey God. The fish obeys God. The whole city of Nineveh, including the animals, obey God. The plant that grows up at the end of chapter four obeys God. The worm that eats the plant obeys God. The only person in the entire story that doesn't obey God is Jonah. Yeah, Jonah. He's the anti-hero of the story. In fact, what's interesting about this being a minor prophet is all the other prophets in the Bible are really receiving a message from God and then speaking that message to the people of God. And even if they don't like it, even if they disagree, they're hearing God speak and then they go and speak to the people. But Jonah is not coming to us like that. It's not Jonah speaking to the people uh, with his words. It's actually God speaking to us through the broken life of Jonah. He's the worst prophet in the Bible and he's one of the worst people in the entire scriptures. He's just a man that's hardened by religion and it's not just that he hates the people of Nineveh and they're easy to hate and you'll see why as we get to chapter 3 and 4. It's not just that he hates the people of Nineveh. Here's the tragic part about Jonah. Jonah hates the possibility that maybe God really is as good as he says he is and even God might love and forgive these people and that that's a thought that he just can't stomach. And so he runs from God. Chapter one is him running from God. He doesn't have a conversation. He doesn't even say one single word to God. He just goes the opposite direction from Nineveh, heads for Tarshish, gets on the boat, gets down in the middle of the boat, tries to fall asleep, and just tries to forget about the whole thing that God said. And that's where we pick it up in Jonah at the very end of chapter one. Let me just read this to you. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The story was that he was on the ship and the storm hits the ship and it's chaos and it's craziness. And, and Jonah, what we think is an act of self-sacrifice where he's saying, guys, just throw me overboard so that you can be saved is actually not that at all. Jonah's saying, I would rather die than go tell the people of Nineveh about God. So you know what? Just throw me overboard and God will stop the storm. I'll be dead and you'll be okay. It'll be fine. And so the sailors, they don't want to, but eventually they do. They throw Jonah overboard and they begin to repent and they start worshiping the God of the Bible. They start making vows and sacrifices to the God of the Bible. And this story ends in chapter one with Jonah sinking down to the ocean and then this giant sea creature comes and swallows him. And it says he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, if you didn't know the story, which most of you do, if you didn't know the story, you would think the story's over right there. Jonah's dead. In fact, most Hebrew students hearing this story for the first time, they would have gotten to the end of chapter one and be like, wow, that was a crazy story. Don't run from God, you'll die. The end. 
And in fact, that three days and three nights phrase, that's an ancient Near Eastern way of talking about entering into the place of the dead. They believe that it took three days and three nights to go from the place of the living and then descend down into the place of the dead. And so the story, the writer is even trying to get you to see Jonah is as good as dead. So you'd be really shocked when he got to chapter two because chapter two says this. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Jonah prayed, what? Jonah's alive? This fish doesn't just devour Jonah, but actually God sent this fish in many ways to rescue Jonah. Now this is what's so crazy about the story. Now some of you, if I just pause here for just a minute, you would say, yeah, I'm a skeptic. I don't really believe the Bible. And these are the stories that cause me a lot of doubt that a man could be thrown overboard and then eaten by a giant sea creature and then somehow after three days and three nights, you know, after pinning this beautiful prayer in chapter two from the belly of the fish, he survives the whole ordeal and he's okay and lives to tell the tale. So some of you, this is a real struggle with the Bible. Like, how do we interpret this? And I just want to say to you, if that's you, I totally get it. And by the way, if you're a Christian and you don't think this is weird, then you've been in church a little too long. Right? You've forgotten that this really is a strange story about a guy getting thrown into the ocean and then surviving the whole ordeal by staying inside of a fish. How do we interpret this? Well, real fast, just as a side note for you, I think, I think this will be helpful if you're a, a skeptic, that throughout church history, people have disagreed how to interpret this. Uh, godly people that really believe the Bible and love Jesus and stand underneath its authority and are not theological liberals have disagreed with how to interpret the book. What makes it hard is the book of Jonah is a divinely inspired satire. Think Saturday Night Live, but in a biblical way, poking fun, not at President Trump or Hillary Clinton, but poking fun at you and me for our own religiosity and our hardness of heart. So this is a story that's really written in a brilliant, profound way. You, you actually, it's not a kid's story. You actually have to be an adult to fully grasp the heart of what's happening in Jonah. And so people have disagreed. You have guys like the church father Origen who believe that this was an allegory. We should just interpret it as an allegory. And then you have guys like St. Augustine, probably the, the leading, most influential theological voice in the history of the church who would say, no, this is actually a real story. My point is, whether or not this is something that you're held up on, it doesn't really need to be. The thing that you should be held up on if you're not a follower of Jesus is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if you wanna talk about that over coffee, we'd love to tell you why we really believe that that happened. That's a real historical event. But here's what we know. We know that Jonah was a real person and we know that Jonah really did run from God and we know that Jonah is actually painting a picture not just of God's people then, but of you and me today. So with that in mind, let's continue on with the story. Chapter two. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. 
Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Just three things that I want you to see about Jonah's prayer this morning. Here's the first thing I want you to see. I just want you to notice the content of Jonah's prayer. Notice the content. This is honestly a beautiful prayer, isn't it? If you woke up early in the morning and you read this in your daily, you know, scripture time, you got to Jonah chapter two, you'd read the prayer, you go, wow, that's, that's a beautiful prayer. I can resonate with this. It's filled with truth. In fact, the first two verses talk about God's attentiveness to our cries for help. When we're crying out to God, he's, he's attentive to the voice of our cry. In verse three and four, he talks about God's continual presence with us, even in the midst of suffering. Here Jonah is, he's sinking down to the bottom of the ocean. He's in the belly of the fish. Life is falling apart, it's chaotic. And he says that God is near and he's with him in that place. In verses five through seven, Jonah talks about how God delivers his people from the pit of death itself. Even when it feels like you're in the place of death and there's, there's absolutely no hope that God has the power to deliver you. That's beautiful. And then verse eight talks about the futility of worshiping false gods. Like surely this is the God of the Bible. This is the one that we should be worshiping, not other gods. And then finally in, in verse nine, he ends it on this beautiful crescendo. It all kind of comes to the, this point and he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is a beautiful prayer. It's true, it's right, there's nothing theologically off about it, it's rich. It almost feels like you could just plug it into the Psalms and it would fit right in, right? It just, it's a beautiful prayer, except for all the ways that it's actually not. And that's the second thing I want you to see, is not just the content of the prayer, but I want you to see the problem with Jonah's prayer. You see, at first glance, this is a beautiful prayer, but if you walk past the front yard, you kind of go into the house and you look in the backyard, you realize that there's some stuff that's really broken and really off about Jonah and the way that he's praying. Here's a few things I want you to notice. First, I want you to notice when Jonah decides to pray for the first time. It's actually not when he ran from God. It's not when God called him to Nineveh. He didn't have a conversation with God about that. Jonah didn't say one word to God. He just instead turned the other direction. And three times in chapter one, it says that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He doesn't want anything to do with God's presence. He wants to go the opposite direction. He gets on the boat and then there's this storm that hits the boat. And even the sailors are praying. Jonah doesn't pray. He's asleep in the boat. Finally, the sailor comes to wake up Jonah. Hey, call out to your God. Please pray to your God. And does Jonah pray at that point in the story? No, he doesn't pray. He doesn't say one word to God. He talks about how he's a Hebrew. He talks about how he fears God who made the land and the sea, even though clearly he doesn't because he's trying to escape. He doesn't say one single word to God in the entire first chapter. So when's the very first moment that Jonah has this realization that he needs to pray? Well, look at chapter two, verse two. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice. This in chapter two is not Jonah 
responding to God and owning his sin and turning to God in repentance, this is Jonah sinking down to the bottom of the ocean, realizing that he's about to die. And it's his last ditch effort. It's a Hail Mary just to stay alive. God, help me. That's what this prayer is. In fact, notice not just when he decides to pray, but notice what Jonah doesn't say in the prayer. Because what he, what he prays is beautiful and it's true and it's right, but there's all this stuff that he, he leaves out. He never mentions one time that he has sinned against God. He never owns his own rebellion. He never says that he's sorry for running. He never asks for God to forgive him for his rebellion. He shows no concern for anybody but himself. All he does in this moment is just cry out to God for deliverance as he sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Here's another one. Notice Jonah's hypocrisy. I don't know if you noticed this in the story, but notice just the, the it's, it's true in a sense, but he's missing the heart of what's really going on in the story. Chapter two, verse three. For you, talking to God, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Translation, you know, it's actually your fault that I'm here, God. You cast me into the deep. Had you never called me to Nineveh, I never would have had to throw myself in. So here's a nod to your sovereignty. I'm in this mess because of you. You were the one that drove me away from your presence. He's not owning his sin. He's not owning his, his uh, chaos that he has kind of brought into his own life. He's saying, yeah, yeah, you're sovereign and, and I'm here in this train wreck of a mess because of you. And then look at this. This is just bizarre. He still has hatred for the pagans, the sailors, and for Nineveh. Listen to this. In the, in the belly of the fish, verse eight, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But then listen to the bravado in his voice. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you catch the irony of the story? That here Jonah is, and he's the only one in the story that's not said a word to God until his crisis hit in his life. And now he's calling out to God, not, not out of repentance, but out of desperation. And he's so kind of disconnected from his own personal reality. He's not owning his sin. He's not owning how he's brought this chaos into his life. And even still here in this place, he has hatred for the sailors who are up on the boat, actually worshiping the one true God, actually making sacrifices to God, actually vowing to God. And here Jonah is saying, yeah, thank you God that I'm not like those guys up there. And here he is unaware of his own brokenness, his own sin, and all the stuff that he's brought into his life. And then he ends it with what at first sounds beautiful, salvation belongs to the Lord. Translation, I only want your salvation if it's for me or my fellow Israelites. But it doesn't belong to you if it's for the Ninevites, and it doesn't belong to you if it's for the sailors. So this is a really jacked up prayer, isn't it? It's one that at first you're like, like almost wiping tears. Wow, that was beautiful. And then after you dig in, you're like, this is not good. This is Jonah steeped in religion and hypocrisy and he's so disconnected from his own personal reality. In fact, I love how the story ends. The, the story kind of cues us to read the passage this way at the very end in chapter two, verse 10. Look at this. 
and the Lord spoke to the fish, and what did it do? It vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. By the word, the word vomit is never used in the Bible or in real life in a good way, ever. It's never, like you don't ever, you know, man, it was a great day, I vomited, and then some other good things happened. No, it's every time the word vomit's used, it's always bad, just as a general rule for life. And that's also true in the Bible. And here it says that the fish vomited Jonah out. It's almost like the fish couldn't stand to have him in there anymore. It's like, ugh, this is gross. Get this religious guy out. In fact, uh, I love the words of Rosemary Nixon and her excellent commentary on Jonah. She says, the writer's use of the word vomit here is curious. We might imagine the prophet being thrown out of the fish's mouth or even walking out, but the writer does not say that the fish spat Jonah out or even coughed him up. No, the text says that Jonah was vomited out. One commentator suggests that the fish is so sickened by Jonah's hypocritical piety at this point that it is no wonder that immediately after Jonah shouts, deliverance belongs to Yahweh, the big fish throws up. See, here's the point that I want you to see. This is not a prayer of repentance. This is a prayer of desperation. This is not a prayer concerned with all the ways that he's crossed these barriers and and disobeyed and rebelled against God. This is a prayer of, oh man, my life is going crazy right now. Please step in and help. This is not a prayer of him owning sin. This is not a prayer of any sort of repentance as much it's just wrapped in all the things that he thinks God wants to hear so he presents this false version of who he really is to God. Surely God will rescue me if I promise just to do better next time. What is repentance? It comes from the Greek word metanoia which means to turn around, literally to turn the other way. And Charles Spurgeon says this, he says repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin It's a mourning that we've committed it. It's a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. This prayer in Jonah 2 is not that. This is not Jonah repenting. This is Jonah presenting a religious and pious version of himself before God. Now, here's here's what I want you to see and what I've been wrestling with this week as I've dug into chapter two. Uh, There's a Jewish tradition that every year during Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement, every year the Jewish people, even to this day, they read, of all the books in the Bible that they could read, they read the book of Jonah. They read Jonah and then what they do is they've built this liturgy where like we do on a Sunday morning, they've got these prayers that they pray and one of the prayers that they pray is a confession to God. And here's their confession as they read the book of Jonah on Yom Kippur. We are Jonah. And they say it over and over again. We are Jonah. And that's because when you read the story, the point of it isn't just to go, oh man, he's really jacked up. The point of the story is to almost see a mirror of ourselves and go, oh man, I do that too. Don't you have moments in your life where you're actually more concerned about being caught and the ramifications of what could go wrong in your life if you're found out than you are of really repenting? Like, don't you, ha- don't you have moments? I do. Don't you have moments where, where you, you pray and it's a good prayer. It's a theologically true prayer. It's right. But your heart is far from God. 
Don't you have moments in your life where all you want is, God, just take me out of this mess and I'll do anything for you. I'll, I'll clean up my life. I promise I won't do that again. I won't look at that again. I won't go there again. Just please fix this. Please fix this. It's not really repentance. It's not really, God, I'm devastated at my sin. God, I can't believe I've done this to you. It's, God, I am sinking here. I am sinking here. I'm not concerned with repentance. Just please fix my life and all the things that are going wrong. Now, here's why I say this. Because I've done ministry in Oklahoma for the last 11 years. And one of the things that I've realized is that there's actually two ways to be lost. There's two ways to be far from God. The first is the very obvious irreligious way where you just run from God and you, you do whatever you want and you kind of just, you don't pretend with anybody. You, you just, yeah, I don't follow Jesus. I don't care about that stuff. I will do my life. You do you, I'll do me. I'm gonna do whatever I want. And you just pursue your heart's desires till you're, you know, you just run that way as long as you want. That's one way. And we definitely have people in Oklahoma that are like that. Maybe you're here today and that's kind of been your story. You've just been doing whatever you want in life. But there's another way to be far from God, and this is the more subtle, more scary way because it's probably true of most people that are far from God in Oklahoma, and that's by actually being draped in religion and wearing this religious facade and this mask where you present to God and other people a version of yourself that really looks great, like you've got it all together, and yep, your marriage is okay, or your sex life is okay, your singleness is okay, you know, you have no addictions, you have no issues, you've got no problems, and you pray the prayers, and you read the Bible, and you know the right stuff, and you do the right stuff, but your heart is far from God. And you don't really do that because you love Jesus, because you want Jesus. You just do that to cover up who you really are. It's the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament. We kind of read that story in Luke 15 and go, that's about one son. But it's actually about two sons. Do you remember? It's about the younger son who just spends his inheritance, his father's inheritance, and runs and, and does some really, really gross things in very obvious ways. But then the story, the second half of the story, realized that there's actually another son, the older brother, who is standing not in the party, he's outside of the party, and he doesn't want anything to do with the father. He just wants the father's stuff too. He just took a different route to get it. And what's crazy about Jonah is Jonah is both the younger brother and the older brother. In Jonah's chapter one, he's the younger brother. He just runs and he does whatever he wants. In Jonah chapter two, he's the older brother. He's praying this beautiful prayer, but his heart is closed off to his own sin. His heart is closed off to who God really is. Now here's what's so crazy is in my heart, maybe in your heart, I have both younger brother and older brother tendencies. It's so bizarre that I can at one moment be judging somebody, be looking at somebody kind of assessing their character and in my head making some really harsh accusations about them while also struggling with the exact same thing that they're doing. It's bizarre. I'm this twisted Jonah where parts of my life are just blatant running from God and parts of my life are I'm praying all the right prayers, but all I really want is God, please take me out of this mess. So what do you do when your life, your sin leads you to the place of chaos and desperation. Is the point of Jonah chapter two, don't cry out to God ever unless you really have repentance? Is the point like, don't pray unless you really mean it? What's the point? 
Well, here's what I want you to see, that Jonah 2 is trying to get you to not do what is so common in our culture, where uh, the invitation of religion is when the proverbial crap hits the fan, what you really need to do is you need to just turn over a new leaf. All right, I'm going to go back to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to get back on that Bible reading plan that I haven't touched since January 4th. And, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray the prayers, and I'm going to do the thing, and I'm going to think happy thoughts, and maybe God will he'll drift towards me, and he'll actually like me. He'll forgive me. He'll love me. He'll rescue me out of this mess. Or the path of irreligion, you're just like, I'm just too far gone. I've ran. I've rebelled. I've lived my life, and there's no going back at this point. I'm just going to pretend that everything's okay. God could never actually intervene or forgive me anyway, so I'm just too far gone. And in the middle of these two broken things that are constantly tugging at your heart, when chaos and destruction and your sin leads you to the place where you feel like you're sinking under the water and there's no hope, when that happens, there's this third way that Jesus comes to you with. And it's an invitation to bring your real self to God. Let me show you this. This is in Luke 18. And I think this is, in many ways, the polar opposite of Jonah's prayer and Jonah chapter two. Luke 18 shows us Jonah's prayer and then shows us what God is calling us to do when we approach him in prayer. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. By the way, anytime you trust in yourself that you're righteous, you always treat other people with contempt. Even if you don't outwardly do it, in your heart you have contempt for other people. So you know that this is you if you just walk around with contempt in your heart right? Uh, he, he said this parable to people that looked inside of themselves and trusted in their own righteousness. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, this is Jonah, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, he's standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. Translation, this is Jonah in the belly of the fish saying, God, thank you, I'm not like those pagan sailors. I will sacrifice to you and keep vows. And then look at the other guy, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, this is so hard for you and I to understand, but when you are in the place of desperation and you are in the place of sinking and you are in the place where your sin is getting the last word and you are overwhelmed and there's no place else to turn, what God wants from you is not to bring some false, fake version of yourself to him in prayer. What God wants from you is to bring the grossness to him to bring the real you, to bring the baggage and the sin and the, the stuff that you don't want anybody else to see because that's the version that he loves, not the fake one. He loves the real you. And Jesus didn't die for fake people with fake sin. Jesus died with people with names and stories and backyards that shouldn't be seen and stuff in their soul that you want to cover up. That's who Jesus died for. So you come to him Sometimes you can't even lift your eyes. Have you ever had moments like that where you show up on a Sunday 
and you can't even sing the words? I have those days. And you go, God, what can I even say to you right now? Like, I'll try better next time. I'll, how many times have I prayed this prayer? God, I'll never do it again. And what God is saying is all I want for you, even when you can't even lift your eyes, even when you can't even hardly speak, is this prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's who God loves, is the sinner. The sinner in you is who he died for. Now here's what's crazy, I love this from C.S. Lewis. If we could get this into our head and our hearts. He says, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Jonah too is laying before God what he thinks God wants to hear. But he never once said, God, I'm really sorry. I've rebelled, I've rejected, I've ran. He presented this false self. And so Jonah 2 is kind of getting us, trying to get us to see that what God really wants is you and your heart and your honesty and you to own how you've contributed to the chaos in your life and the brokenness in your life. And yeah, you're sovereign, but you've made some real decisions to get where you are today. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now here's what's crazy. I'm gonna end it with this. What's crazy is God's response to Jonah's really, really terrible prayer. It's a bad prayer. It's a prayer that God should have just ignored and pushed away. But instead, look at the shocking grace of God and the way he responds to this really jacked up, broken prayer. Chapter two, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish. By the way, he spoke to the fish because historically Jonah's done a really bad job of listening. So the fish is at least going to obey God right? It's like, I'm going to talk to the one that can actually listen and respond to me. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now look at this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Did you see what just happened there? Jonah prays a bad prayer, it's a jacked up prayer. It's a religious prayer. It's just a cry of desperation. And here's how amazing God is. He doesn't rebuke Jonah. He doesn't yell at Jonah. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't throw his sin back in his face. He doesn't say, are you kidding? No way am I gonna rescue you. Look at what you've done. What he does is in the shocking way he speaks identically to how he did in chapter one to Jonah. Says the exact same words. Gives him another chance. Doesn't yell at him, doesn't raise his voice, doesn't make him feel stupid. He doesn't throw shame into his face. He just humbly, kindly, graciously gives him another chance. That's the way that God works. And I don't understand it. But even when you and I, we cry out to God just because we need help we don't really care about God. We just need out of the situation. God, in his divine humility, he still condescends and comes in response to that prayer. Unbelievable. Some of you, like that's what got you into the faith for the first time. Your life was falling apart. You didn't really, Jesus wasn't that attractive to you, but you just knew that whatever you're doing wasn't working. And so you started coming to church and then you just, God, please, if you're real, if you're out there, just, just help me. And God in his mercy, he did, he helped you. He answered that prayer. 
even though it wasn't real repentance and it wasn't really you turning to him. He's so good that even the prayer of desperation that isn't the prayer of repentance, he still comes and he responds with love and with mercy and with grace because he really does love you. And his love is not dependent on your repentance or not. He just loves you. He just loves you. I don't know why he just loves you. And he won't stop. Listen to this again from Rosemary Nixon. Many of us, when caught in very difficult circumstances, may find that we have little thought to give to God. Instead, our overriding concern is to find help and a way out of all that causes us distress. Ultimately, we may be driven to prayer as a last resort. And like Jonah, we may promise to praise God when he rescues us. You ever done that? God, just get me out of this mess and I promise I will worship you. But look at this. The great wonder of this kind of prayer is that our Lord in his great love towards us condescends to deliver us out of our frequently self-inflicted mess. Here is a God more willing to hear than we are to pray. A God who knows the words on our lips before we speak them, but who long for us to speak them so that we may know he has heard our prayer. Friends, listen, this is the story of the Bible. It's a story of God wanting to be close to us. And it's a story of us rebelling and rejecting and running. And sometimes that running is very obvious. And sometimes that running is is more hidden under the guise of religion. And we look like we're okay, but we're really not. Either way, we run and we run and we run. And yet, God, he will not stop chasing us down. And even in the place of death, even under the ocean where you feel like God wouldn't be That, even that place is where he comes with his presence to love and to forgive and to hear our cry. And some of you, that's where you are today. Literally, you walked in and you're drowning, you're sinking, your life is falling apart. You feel like God is unmaking you and and, and maybe you've been blaming God. God, this is your fault. Why did you bring this into my life? Why did this happen? And, And maybe some of it is your own sin and you know that you've created the chaos. Either way, the second that in your heart you just start to cry out to God, even if it's not real repentance, God is so eager to just come towards you with love and to respond, and to bring you close to himself. That's the story of the gospel. He goes to the cross for you when you didn't ask him. He takes your sin off your back when you didn't ask him. He died in your place when you didn't ask him. And he rose again from the dead, and now he chases you down constantly. Let me love you. Let me forgive you. Let me heal you. Let me change your heart. That's the story of the gospel. So I want to invite you. Would you stand with me?